Thank you for downloading this man-to-man podcast from Awakened Heart Ministries. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. You can find out more about Dr. Scott Engelman and the Awakened Heart Ministries team on our website at ahm4.life. Let's just say that you're married and you go home today and you get home and your wife is quiet. In fact, you, you kind of look in and when she looks at you, she just kind of turns her head and you see maybe a little tear going down her cheek. Now all of a sudden you think about everything that happened before you left and you begin to form a story. Now when you tell yourself that story, I did something wrong, then you begin to feel something. And when you begin to feel pressure, anger, fear, shame, guilt, whatever you might feel, what do you then do? When we connect dots in a certain way, it'll form a story and that story will always affect how we feel and how we act and how we react. Welcome to session four, part two of this AHM series, God's Story, Your Story. Okay, how can uh, you know your story? And uh, let's look at this, four thoughts. I wanna begin, the first thought is this, most men don't know their story. Most men don't know their story. There are several reasons I think this is true. First, it's not a category in their thinking. You know, I, I went through uh, four years of seminary and then uh, was a pastor for 10 years before I even had this category in my thinking. It wasn't until I went back and, and um, uh, got my master's with Larry Crabb uh, in counseling that um, this category of, of story ever came into my thinking. And so most of us don't have this category in our thinking. Another reason is most of uh, men, I think, confuse it with their history or testimony. They talk about their story, well, I'm gonna tell my story. What, what do you mean by that? Well, they asked me to tell my story, what happened to me, how I got saved at church or in my small group. Um, we're too afraid uh, because we don't know what to do with it. Uh, there, there's, it's just like this, this snake back here. I just want to leave it alone in case you touch it. It might bite me and it's just too big and too powerful. I'll just avoid it. Or it's too infused with shame to face it. You know, there, there's just all these bad things that have happened that I just feel so much shame about, so much guilt about that. You know, I'll just do the Simba thing, Kuna Makata. Um, uh, it's too much work to deal with it. And it is, guys, it's a lot of work to, to deal with your story, to face your story, to seek to move it from that factory preset to a, a, preset, to a, to a, a setting that is more in line with God's story than our own story, how it begins. And uh, some guys, they sincerely want to, but they just don't know how. Now, I don't know where you are in this, but if you are this last bullet point, I really want to know my story, but I don't know how, well then stick around because we're going to begin to talk about this process. And the process uh, begins uh, with, to know your story involves the long process of discovery. It's a process of discovery. It's not something you manufacture. Hey, I'd like to have this be my story, so I'm going to adopt it. This will be my story. 
There are no steps, techniques, or formulas. You know, you're not going to get three things to do today and you know what your story is. There's no single book, seminar, or retreat. You know, we have story weekends, but you know what? You go and you maybe get a little bit more understanding of your story, but it isn't going to be, you know, the, the, the whole thing because it's a process. It takes time. In fact, it's discovered a little at a time over the course of your lifetime. I'm going through a um, uh, kind of a, a spiritual uh, discipline uh, now, uh, Ignatius kind of a thing that I'm learning more of my story in some different ways and I'm seeing things that I've never seen before. And it's making sense of how I relate and my style of relating and everything. And that allows me then to say, okay, God, what do I want to do with this? Whereas before, I didn't even see it. And I've been working on this, on my own story, since 1993. It requires desire, awareness, diligence, and community. You can't know your, come to know your story in isolation. So it's, it's a long process of discovery. Second, this process of discovering your story it has to begin somewhere, and it begins, the most important thing, with stillness. Stillness. Now, what is stillness? How would you define that? Pardon me? Going limp. Okay. What else? How would you, how would you define stillness? Stillness isn't something we think a lot about, it, is it? Okay, maybe some introspection. Although that could also create other things that aren't stillness. Solitude. Solitude can be the environment that creates stillness. Rest. Maybe a, an exhale. Okay, focus on a God. Let me put it like this. Stillness is a learned mental habit. It isn't something that you accidentally do because not only is there something in us that's always going to move as men in good ways, but there's always going to be something in moving us in bad ways. And that movement in bad ways, you know, is typically by shame or typically we're told that, you know, you can't sit still you know, uh, because then you're lazy, whatever it is. That was one of the messages I got from my dad, that, you know, you can never sit still because you can't be lazy. But it's a learned mental habit. And what is it involved? It involves quieting the constant noise, the, the monkey mind, that chatter that's going on inside us, all those distractions, uh, the restlessness you feel in your body. Don't you just sometimes just sit down and you just feel like your body's just kind of buzzing? You just, you just can't sit still, you know? And it's not ADHD or anything like that. It's just, you're, you're, you're just moving. Um, and it often goes on inside us because it's so much a part of us. It goes on without our awareness. You know, I've said this before, and you've probably heard it. it it's like asking a fish, to tell you what is wet. What does it mean to be wet? Well, he can't tell you. 
primarily because he can't talk. But if he could, guess what? He wouldn't know how to define it because it surrounds him. And because it surrounds him, he's unaware of it. He becomes unaware of it. The, the monkey mind and all the chatter and all the distractions are so much a part of us, we're not even aware of it anymore. And we have a culture that we just absorb it from. I mean, you listen to the news. It doesn't matter what news you listen to. What does it make you want to do? You know? It discourages you from stillness. So how is it developed? It's developed by withdrawing from the constant stimulation of your mind and your body through the practice of silence and solitude. We stimulate our body with energy drinks. Got to keep it going. We stimulate our mind by always having to have noise on. You know, when you run, got to have music. When I'm driving in the car, got to be listening to something. Stillness is coming to the place of shutting all that stuff down, anything that stimulates the mind or the body. Now, there's appropriate places for stimulation of mind and body but not 24-7. Now, what does stillness do? Stillness slows us down to notice things we are too busy too often to see. For example, you've seen the, um, the video on uh, uh, the Internet. You can go, I forgot, just type it in, gorilla and that. And what it does, this, was, this is a psychological experiment. They tell, they told the, they'll tell you, as you watch this, just notice how many times they pass the basketball back and forth. And they're trying, I think they're trying to get it from each other, so keep your eye on the ball. So you're keeping on the, your eye on the ball, and at the end, how many times? And so you're supposed to be able to have told them how many times the ball has passed hands. And then they say, did you see the gorilla? And you say, what gorilla? And when they slow down and they show it again, the grill is right there, and he does a little jig, and then he walks off. But you're so busy, you don't even see what's in plain sight. Let me give you a stillness exercise. I mean, on your way home, you can do this. Drive home with no uh, radio on. If you cut the grass today, keep the headphones off. But try this. Set aside five minutes, and you might want to do it every day this week. Just try it. Find a place where you're comfortable. There's going to be no distractions, no kids, no phones, no possible disruptions, no music. It's just plain silent. And then set a timer so you don't have to be thinking about, okay, have I done five minutes yet? For 25 minutes. 25 minutes. 30 minutes. 30 minutes. <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> uh, set, set the timer. <laughs> Somebody's paying attention. <laughs> Sit still and close your eyes and notice. And notice three things. Just notice the background noises. 
Maybe you'll hear cars in the background. Maybe you'll hear birds. Maybe you'll hear crickets at night, whatever it might be. Also notice all the chatter that's going on in your mind. Just notice it. Okay? Don't try to explain it. Don't try to get rid of it, because the more you try to get rid of one thing, you clump onto it. And if there's chatter in your mind, just see it as kind of floating down the river. Oh, there it is, and there it goes. Just let it be there. Notice also the sensations in your body. You know, is your stomach tight? Is your, what's going on in your chest? Is your throat feeling kind of like closed off? You know, yeah, whatever it is. Just notice those, how your, your uh, legs are on the chair, how your feet feel, you know, the ground feels beneath your feet. If you're outside, notice just how the sun or the wind is hitting your face. Just notice those things. That's all you do. What you're doing is you're taking away any stimulation and you're just allowing yourself to be there to slow down. Now, whatever you notice, again, don't obsess on it. Don't judge it. You know, you start slowing down and you start noticing things. It's like, oh, I'm having some pretty nasty thoughts here. Oh, I must be a bad Christian. Shame. No, if you notice it, don't judge it. Say, oh, that's there and there it goes. Don't try to fix anything. Just acknowledge it and sit with it. That's hard to do. But it's necessary to do just to let all the stimulation stop. And if you can do this for five days, try it for 10. If you can do it for 10, try it for 21. And after 21 days, they say it's a habit. This would be a good habit to do, to learn. Five minutes a day. And if you do it every day, you begin to develop stillness as a mental habit. And this mental habit is necessary if you are really determined to begin the process of discovering your story because you cannot know your story without stillness. Why that? Why stillness? Before we do that, let me give you something else. Here's another noticing tool just to notice what's going on with you. It's, it's called SIFT, S-I-F-T, it's an acronym. S stands for sensations, your bodily sensations. I stands for images, pictures you see in your head. Uh, F stands for feelings, what you're feeling. Um, T stands for thoughts, the thoughts you're having or a story you're telling yourself. Now let me show you how this works. You can use this every day in any situation that you have. So say you have a discussion with a friend and you leave that discussion right away. What I want you to do is pause for a moment. I just had this discussion with this friend. And what you do is you pause for a moment and you quickly run through SIFT, S-I-F-T. Sensations, images, feelings, thoughts. And you ask yourself, what are the things that I felt during this conversation, during this interaction? And name it. Okay, I had this conversation with this guy and sensations, what were some bodily sensations? Uh, I'm not aware of any. Uh, how about images? No, right now, no, uh-uh. Some feelings. Well, you know, I, I, I did feel a little guilty. I'm not sure why, but I, I did feel a little guilty now that I think about it. And thoughts. What was I telling Well, I, I guess the thoughts I were having as I think about it now is, you know, I, I, 
kind of didn't come through for him because he was he 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 disagreed with one of my decisions. Huh. I should have I, I should have come through for him, I guess is the story I'm telling myself, and I feel guilty. Now you know what I'm feeling? I'm I'm recognizing I'm just kind of feeling this kind of this feeling in my gut. As I think about it now, I, I can kind of see this image of when I was a boy. How my I could never do anything in my family that was right. Huh. And ask yourself then, are there any of these SIF, these, these sensations, images, feelings, thoughts, that are similar to what I used to experience as a boy? Yeah. I used to feel guilty all the time because my dad would get mad at me or my mom wouldn't like what I did because my job was to always make them happy. And if I didn't make them happy, then there was something wrong with me. And I was so guilty. And, and I'd always felt this in my... And, and what you do, you're beginning to connect what? The present and the past, which is necessary to know your story. Why? Because your story is built around what? Boyhood memories. And most of those memories are implicit memories that you don't remember the experience, but you do remember the emotion. This helps connect the past and the present. And it also then helps you become aware of what's happening to you in the present. It slows you down to have to notice. Some helps for developing stillness. A uh, couple books. Uh, Ruth Haley Barton, uh, The Invitation to Solitude and Silence, Into the Silent Land, Martin Laird. And then a, a prayer app that I use. You can get it on wherever you get apps at. Uh, Pray as you go. I use this every morning. I take my dog out for a walk every morning, um, about 5 o'clock, and I use this. And at night, before I go to bed, I go outside, and I'll walk, whatever, and I'll use the, the, their examine. It's, it's on here. It's a prayer. And, and what they are, they're, they're different kind of prayers. They cause you to have to slow down and think and be aware of how, where you may have seen God, where you may have been aware of God in the day, or what the word, as they're reading it, is stirring inside of you. So again, it's just some different ways to, that you can begin to learn to practice stillness. Okay? Next, you got to slow down because stillness opens the door, again, to noticing. It's all about noticing. Noticing three key things. And without noticing these three key things, you cannot know your story. First, the context of your family of origin. I'll say something about that in a second. Second, the existence of your sacred stories. Within your story, there are some sacred stories. Not all your stories from the past, all the events and things you remember are sacred, but there are a few sacred stories, both positive and negative. And thirdly, the message of your, for lack of a better term, internal or inner interpreter, or I think I change it as I go here in the slides, personal interpreter. We all have this kind of guy sitting on our shoulders telling us how we should understand what's going on, okay? We gotta be aware of these things, is what I'm saying. Why? Because they're necessary for knowing your story. First, the context of your family of origin. 
we got to be aware of this. Why? Well, every story, whether you read it in the Bible, where, whether it's a Charles Dickens or whatever it might be story, has a context in which the story is written. And if you want to understand the story, you have to understand what? The context. If you don't understand the context, you can read it and not understand what the story is about. The story's context, it's important because the context defines the characters, who they are, what they're about. It sets the mood for the story. It creates the dynamics of what happens between the characters, what happens in the story itself, and it shapes the entire direction of the story, where the story's going to go. We won't know any of that without knowing the context. Now, your family of origin is the context for your story. Your family of origin. The family that you grew up in as a boy. As your context, your identity was defined by your family. As your context, the mood by which you expect to experience the world was set by your family. There's a way we expect the world is going to come to us in which we're, we, we have these expectations, and most of the time we're not even aware of it. That's the mood of your story, and that was set by the context of your family. And thirdly, the direction that your life is going to take is shaped by your family. Your family is your context in which your story is written. Another way of putting it, it's your family, it's your factory preset. This is where the default setting comes. It comes from your family of origin. For example, uh, we all receive story-forming messages from our parents as a boy. By the way they interacted with you, parents relate to you, they interact with you, they treat you in certain ways, good, bad, indifferent. Did you feel safe, seen, loved, and powerful? Your parents are going to answer those questions for you by the way they interact with you. They may say, oh, you're safe, you're loved, we love you, but it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to feel it. And the brain and memory operates not on the words, but on the feelings that were experienced. And then, again, this forms our identity by the way our parents interacted with us by the way they lived their lives before you. Not only did they interact with you, but they lived in the world and you watched them. And as you watched them, you absorbed their story with all its pain, fears, hurts, relational styles, and beliefs about the world. This formed the mood by which, oh, if that's how the world is, then that's for them that must be how the world is going to be for me. So what they expect is what I will expect. Thirdly, by the unspoken rules they implanted in you. Now, there were rules in your home, and there were rules in my home, but then there were unspoken rules in your home, and unspoken rules in my home, and we all knew it, but maybe we couldn't say them, not because they were, you'd get in trouble if you did, but it was just expected, and it was so much a part of the expectation, it was like the fish being wet. It's just what it was. And the message was this, really. 
these unspoken rules. To be part of this family, you must only think and feel and act in a way that doesn't make us, your parents, feel uncomfortable. Because if you think, feel, and act in any other way, it's going to make us uncomfortable. And we don't like to be uncomfortable. We don't like unpredictability. We like predictability. And we want our kids not to add to our unpredictability, but add to our security. So if you want to be part of this family, you've got to think, feel, and act and believe this way. And so guess what? I want to be part of this family. I don't want to be alone. I want to be loved. So guess what we all do? We unknowingly throw all the things away in order to be safe. That's how I think. That's how I feel. My dad says, you're not cold? I'm cold, Dad. You're not cold. Why? Because I'm not cold. So you shouldn't be cold. Oh, okay, then I'm not cold. You don't have a way to feel different than I do. You don't have a right to feel different than I do. We all grew up in homes like that. This forms the direction of our lives. Did you, did you want to get that, Tim? I don't have a way to quickly go through that. Okay. In other words, as a boy, parental messages set the context for your story. Messages spoken and unspoken. And as a man, those messages create a family context that also works to produce inside of each of us an internal template by which we are going to see life, by which we are going to see the world. We look at the world and we see life through this template that we all have in us as a result of the homes we grow up in. That's why we can have all have a self-protective style of relating, but it's all unique to ourselves. Because we all have different templates by which we see life and then have to deal with life, the unpredictability and the uncertainty of it. Now, our boyhood memories define our identity. This is who you are. This is who I am. Our adult experiences, because we're looking through the template, only work to reinforce that identity. Our boyhood memories set life's mood. This is how I will experience the world. Our adult experiences only work to reinforce the mood by which we expect to experience the world. Why? Because we have this template. This is how it's going to come to you. Oh, so the only way I'm going to see it is that way. Our boyhood memories shape your direction. It shapes my direction. This is how I must think and be and feel and act to be okay. To be safe, secure, seen, and powerful. And our adult experiences only then work to reinforce the direction our life is taking. Why? Because we see life as it comes to us through that internal template. Mark? Is there, a, is there some, uh, I know there's not an exact point where as a boy and as a man separates, but is there some, like, you know, are we talking about only like, you know, six or eight years old as a boy, or are we talking uh, 15, 16, 17? 
I think it's all developing, and I think it can go in different directions, but it all develops, and a lot of it is not only the messages, but how we're wired. You know, we're, we're, we're going to respond to things not only from the environment, but from how God has created us, you know, how he wired us to be, to, to think. Now, this is our default operating system. Our, you know, uh, our identity, mood, direction, it's all reinforced by adult experiences. But this is the factory preset, the, the boyhood memories that define our identity, mood, and direction. Okay? And again, unless we specifically do something about the preset, nothing's going to change. And let me say this. Just reading your Bible, going to a small group, and going to church on Sunday, and maybe serving at the church, isn't going to change the precept. It isn't going to change the precept. It can help, but more has to be done. Now, what's the problem with our family context? You have one, I have one. What's the problem? Well, the family context, how we are defined, the mood we experience life, the direction our life takes, will always be at odds with the direction of God's story. Our family context moves us in this direction instead of moving us in this direction. And so to live into God's story, what do we have to do? We can't ignore the family context. We must begin to confront it. Second thing, no, stillness helps us to notice the existence of your sacred stories. The existence of your sacred stories. Again, we all have a story, our default operating system, but within this default operating system, there's some key programs, some sacred stories that are really powerful in terms of how they influence how we think, how we feel, how we live. Now, what's a sacred story? A sacred story, how I'm defining it, and you all have one, is a boyhood experience whose memory, for whatever reason, remains with you today. We all have some memories where you think, you know, I say, tell me some boyhood memories. You know, probably there'll be one or two that come to your mind right away. It might be a positive one, it might be a negative one. For whatever reason, if I say, why does that memory stick with you? Well, maybe it sticks with you because it was a really important thing, or maybe, I don't know, it's, it's just, for whatever reason, it's just there, and I always just remember it. We all have those. Now, your story, as I said here, contains a few sacred stories that are both positive and negative in nature. And your sacred stories combine together to unconsciously define, now get this, guys, to unconsciously define our perception, or your stories, my story's perception of life and death. What is life and what is death? Well, your story has a way of thinking about that. There's a way that you perceive what life is, and there's a way that you perceive what death is. And our sacred stories define that. Now, why do you think it's important? What's the power that those sacred stories have? What do we know about how God has created us? 
as image bearers, we were designed for life. We're designed to image God, a living God, who designed us to do what? To pursue life, to create life, to bring life. And everything in us pursues life, and if we're pursuing life, everything in us is going to do what? Avoid death, anything that feels like death. So we naturally pursue life, pursue those things that feel like life. There are things that you experience today that will feel more like life than other things. And there are other things that will happen to you today that will feel more like death than other things. And guess what you will do? You will pursue more of those things and you will work to avoid those things that feel like death. We all do that. Why? Because we're made in the image of a living God and we were made for life, to pursue life, to bring life, to give life. Now, our sacred stories unconsciously direct our story toward that which felt like life in boyhood and to avoid or to turn away from those things that felt like death in boyhood. What do I mean? Here's an example of a positive sacred story, uh, a, a boyhood experience. <clears throat> the guy's name is, happens to be Scott. This is one of my sacred stories. Scott made a play at second base, I was 10 years old, I think, Little League, that got a standing ovation, not just by his team, but by the other team, and all the fans in the Stadium. Everybody stood up and clapped. In fact, when I looked and I had the ball, I started clapping. <laughs> the emotional memory, Scott felt seen, recognized, and admired by others for what? Standing out. It just wasn't a good play. It was a spectacular play. Now, there's an old saying that says, what fires together, wires together. Spectacular play, being seen, recognized, and admired. What fires together, wires together, and it produces an emotional perception of life. So, what does that sacred story tell me what life is? For Scott, life is feeling seen, recognized, and admired for standing out from others. Whenever I feel that, that feels like I'm alive. Contrast that with a negative sacred story. We all have them. A boyhood experience that I had, Scott's dad took Scott's friend, Bob, out on the boat without inviting Scott. They were just gone. And there I was, left standing on the dock. The emotional memory that I had was Scott felt unseen, unrecognized, and undesired by his father. Again, what fires together, wires together. Scott's dad, forgetting Scott, feeling unseen, unrecognized, and undesired by his father produces an emotional perception of death. This is what feels like death to me. 
For Scott, death is feeling unseen, unrecognized, and undesired by others, especially from those he admires. It isn't just everybody. It's certain people. I admired my dad. My dad was my hero. And so I look for that from others. Even now, one of the best things that feels most life-giving to me is when I know that I can please somebody that I admire. It's always what I always want to do for my dad. But the message my dad gave me was, he didn't see me, he didn't recognize me, he didn't desire me. Alexa, stop. Now note the power of my sacred stories. How they set the direction for my life. You can kind of see that if you know me, can't you? Life for Scott, and I'm going to pursue anything that feels like life, is feeling seen, recognized, and admired for standing out. As a result, I will pursue life by working hard to be seen, recognized, and admired for always being the best. Not just doing my best, but for standing out. I have to be the best. I don't have to be the best in everything, but just at what I do. Again, it has to be spectacular. I need both teams to stand up and the fans to stand up. Because that feels like life. And I'll struggle with closeness because this is what I do. I'll struggle with closeness because if you're always having to be spectacular, you can't let people get close. You're too busy. With anxiety, am I going to do enough? Jealousy, well, why aren't I getting that? That should be mine. And the ability to, inability to slow down. See how that now begins to shape my life? My definition of life? Death for Scott was feeling wrongly, and it was wrong. Why? Because my dad should have seen me. My dad should have recognized me. My dad should have desired me. Feeling wrongly unseen, uh, unrecognized, undesired. And so I will avoid anything that feels like that. Anything that feels like death. And what I'll do is I will avoid death by overachieving, working hard to be the best so that as to never disappoint. And if I'm not sure I can be the best, guess what? I won't do it. I wrestled at Moody. And, and I, I was okay. I was pretty good. But what I found is I could only... I would only be as good as the per just a little better if I could beat them as the person that I was wrestling. Because I didn't want to know what my best was. I was too afraid that it wouldn't be good enough. And when I define death like this, I'm going to always struggle with envy. Now, jealousy is somebody taking from me what I think should be mine. And so if I'm doing this, don't anybody get in the way of taking it from me. Envy is, you're getting what I really want. So I'm going to struggle with envy, exhaustion, and feeling misunderstood and used. Because if you just understood me, then you'd see that I really am doing this good. I'm not a bad guy. You should desire me. And used. Why? Because I can never say no. I always got to please. But when you please and you don't feel admired and seen in return, 
after a while, you just get mad. Now, here's my question. What's the problem with these two sacred stories? Answer? They don't reflect God's definition of life and death in his story. My smaller story says life is being seen, recognized, and admired, and death is being unseen, unrecognized, and unadmired. It's an, uh, life and death is an objective to be managed by effort. God's larger story defines life as connection to God and Jesus, John 17.3, and death is alienation from God and Jesus, Revelation 21.8. It's a relationship to be received by trust as opposed to an objective to be managed by effort. And when I view it my way and God views it his way, his way is creational reality, is mine is my own perceived reality, it's going to prevent me from living into God's story. Right? Why? Because my definition of life and death is going to move my whole life story in this direction, and God's story is moving in the other direction. And so without knowing my own definitions, how I perceive life and how I perceive death, I won't be able to, there will be barriers getting in the way that I'm not even aware of. So here's a couple questions to ponder. What is your best boyhood memory? Whatever it is, how has that positive memory, probably one of your sacred stories, shaped your definition of life? And how have you pursued that definition of life over the years? You'll see it if you take time to discover it. What's your worst boyhood memory? And how has that negative memory, which is probably one of your sacred stories, shaped your definition of death? And whatever your definition of death, however you perceive death, how have you avoided that definition of death over the years? And then here's the last question. Have your definitions of life and death prevented you from living into God's story? That's the core question. And the answer is, yes, they have. And so then, stillness opens our eyes to notice three things. The context, the existence of sacred stories, and finally, real quickly, the message of your personal interpreter. Let me just quickly go through this because I know we're running out of time here. Your personal interpreter, your inner interpreter, is that part of your brain that takes the internal template that was formed, remember we talked about that, by your family context and sacred stories, how you see life, takes your present experience uh, sensations and emotions, and in a nanosecond, it synthesizes it all together into a single message of what the present experience or situation means for you and how you need to respond to stay safe. All that happens in a split second. For example, this would never be you or especially never be me, uh, a man getting ready for work and his wife says, are you going to wear that to work? Your personal interpreter says, it's a story you're telling yourself. She thinks you're stupid when it comes to clothes. No. She just thinks you're plain old stupid. Now, that 
isn't necessarily in the forefront of your mind, but that's there, below the surface. And you know it's there because immediately your body floods with shame and anger. Hmm. You're having that $100 reaction to a $5 event. And it's similar to what you felt as a boy when your family laughed at you for how you cut the lawn. You don't know how to do anything, do you? You begin to speak. Who do you think you are? My mother? I'll get you. And you act. You quickly stomp away to let her know, I'm really mad. None of us do that. But if we do, you know what? It all happens in a brief moment, doesn't it? Without even thinking, but there are things going on that cause us to do this. And the crazy part is your wife is there puzzled and confused and hurt because she was just wanting to know, maybe you need to have that, I'll iron it for you, you know? But she then gets angry because her personal interpreter says what? My husband thinks I'm whatever. And so she acts and reacts. And it brings up emotions from her, implicit memories from her childhood. And you see how the cycle then goes? Note about your personal interpreter. Its message may or may not be true. It may be that your wife was criticizing you. It may not be. But it feels true based on the implicit memories from boyhood. Its message is the cause of the emotions and words and actions that follow, not your wife. She doesn't cause them. It's these implicit memories that are, are coming up to the surface that she's just triggered, and she doesn't even know she's triggered them. Its message will always validate your self-protective relational style because that's how you protect yourself as a kid. You reacted and you ran away. And that's how you do it today. Its message is just below the waterline, whispering in your ear. Tell your wife we'll be done in just a second. <laughs> that's the wrong phone. <laughs> Uh, it's without awareness, without awareness of your personal interpreter, you become a slave to him. You're going to just do whatever he tells you. I don't want to get mad and yell and scream and stomp off. But why do I do it every time? There's a reason you have this personal interpreter. Your personal interpreter creates invisible barriers preventing you from fully living into God's story. You see how that happens? There's a whole lot more to telling your story than going on a weekend retreat, isn't there? That's a good place to start. But it's much more complex and deeper than that. Here's uh, just an exercise you can do to get to be aware of your uh, personal interpreter. Consciously ask yourself when you're, uh, when you're interacting with people, consciously ask yourself these questions. What's the story I'm telling myself right now? That's your personal interpreter. Whatever the story you're telling yourself, it may be true, it may not be true, but it's the story you're telling yourself. Well, he does that because he thinks, I failed him. Well, maybe he doesn't feel that, but that's the story I'm telling myself. And when I tell myself that story, how do I feel? I feel guilty. And when I tell myself that story and I feel guilty, how do I react? Well, I get defensive. Uh, and I maybe 
start attacking. And what hurts about that story? Well, I just feel misunderstood because that's not how I was wanting him to see this. I'm not a bad person like he's thinking I am. I want to be seen as good. And what does all that remind me of from my boyhood? Because I can guarantee you, it does. A $5 event that gets a $100 reaction is coming from your story of the past. So what have we seen today? We've seen what our story is. It's your default operating system for doing life. How is your story being told? It's told through your self-protective relational style. Where was your story formed? In your family of origin, through boyhood memories. And how do you know your story? How can you come to know your story? Uh, by developing habits of stillness and awareness that allows you to see and be aware of family context, sacred stories, and a personal interpreter. If I could just give an overview, guys, and this just kind of brings it all together. At our deepest core, we long to be safe, seen, loved, and powerful, right? These are all God-given longings that are necessary for masculine thriving. If you want to thrive as a man, this is what's necessary. But because we live in a broken world, amongst broken people, those longings are going to be disappointed by the world and by the people around us. We're not going to feel all the things we want to feel. Life in this fallen world will always disappoint my longings and triggers fears and shame. Why not? I must be bad. And that works, those experiences and those emotions create a memory that's alive inside of me. Well, that memory then works because I'm a fallen person, not just the world and people around me, but me too. Rather than trusting God with the darkness, rather than trusting God, I light my own fire. I'm going to create a sense of security. I'm going I'm to bring light to this darkness. If God won't protect me or give me what I want, I will make it happen on my own without Him. And so we began early as a boy learning coping mechanisms, ways I can bring light to my darkness so I don't have to trust God. And as I get older, that produces my self-protective relational style. Based on my strengths, my wiring, my past coping strategies as a boy, I will find a way to relate to this world that gets me what I want. And there's your fully formed story. That's how it all comes together. So, what's our goal? Our goal as men is to live into God's story. But before we can do that, guys, we have to align our story with God's story. We've got to know God's story. But assuming we know God's story, we then have to align our story with God's story. But before we can align our story with God's story, we first have to what? Know our story. You can't know your story. You can't align your story if you don't know your story. And you've got to know where your story is misaligned. But before you can know where your story is misaligned, you have to know the real story you're telling. You've got to know your story. Remember, as you work on knowing your story, God isn't asking us 
that we like our story or the direction he's taken. You don't have to like your story. God isn't telling you that. You don't have to pretend your story is better than it really is. Some of us have awful stories when you think about all the tragedies. We don't have to deny our story's tragedies or failures or disappointments or injustices. You don't have to pretend your story is something other than it is. God isn't asking you to do that. But what God is asking is that we acknowledge the full truth of our story just as it is. He already knows it, so we're not going to tell him anything he doesn't know. And even though he knows it, he still loves us, right? And then, as we acknowledge this full truth, we need to sit with our story without judging it, fixing it, or excusing what we see. Just be with our story. Because if we're not, if we're trying to fix it or excuse it, guess what we're not doing? We're not being still. God asks us to be still with our story before Him. And here's where it really comes in. We're still with our story, we're sitting with our story, and we allow ourselves to feel its full weight. The crushing nature of our story, given its tragedies, the guilt and shame of our story, given our own failures, the fears, all of that. We feel its full weight, but always and only in the context of God's love. Without the context of God's love, your story and my story will crush us. And we will live like Simba. In other words, what we do is this. This is my story, whether I like it or not. I can't wish it away. I can't work it away. I can't hate it away. I can only accept it as it is. And we hold it and we bear its weight, but if we bear it without God's love, it will crush us. So we, re, we bear it in the context of God's love for us in Christ. And as we do, guys, the message that we begin to recognize within ourselves is I don't have to like my story. But I can begin to accept it because God knows my story and through His love for me and Jesus forgives what needs to be forgiven, comforts what needs to be comforted. He, he redeems what needs to be redeemed. And He does this by inviting me into His larger story. He doesn't allow me to live outside His story. Through Christ, He allows me to join Him in His story, where the comfort and the forgiveness and the redemption begin to take place. And it's there that my story, as it's joined with His story, has a hope, has a hope that this is going to turn into something far beyond I could ever imagine. That my story, my story, your story, is going to have an ending not just a good ending, but a great ending. Why? Because we're becoming part of the greatest story ever told as we learn to live our story into God's story. <clears throat> and it's an important we do that in the context of God's love because apart from doing it that way, knowledge of our story will be superficial at best, 
The mood of our story will be characterized by naivete or contempt. I won't look at it or I'll hate what I see. And any hope of realigning my story to live into God's story will be fruitless. So closing question. How can we know what parts of our story are aligned with God's story and what parts of our story are misaligned with God's story? How can we know that? Because that's important to know. Because it's those misaligned parts that are preventing us from fully living into God's story. Well, if you're interested in answering that question, come back next time. We hope that Scott's message today has encouraged you and helped you to better understand how you can become the man God created you to be in the greatest story ever told. Please visit our website, ahm4.life, and click on the Resources tab. There you will see the Man to Man podcast and other resources we have available. At AHM, our mission is to provide hope and direction to men in a confusing world through Jesus Christ. Please continue to keep our ministry in your prayers, and if you would like to donate to our efforts, visit our website and click on the Giving tab. Man to Man podcasts are provided by Awaken Heart Ministries, located in Troy, Michigan.